Hello and welcome to the second episode of my podcast, Emergency on Planet Earth. Today we're going to be talking about Brexit. I know, but stick with me. Now the EU sets out a series of environmental principles for governments to abide by and it also establishes legal minimum standards for our water quality, our waste and on air pollution. It's the government's job to meet those targets. But sadly, millions of us in the UK live in areas with illegally high levels of air pollution. So the European Commission is currently taking legal action against our government. If we do not uphold EU environmental law, the UK government could face huge fines. If the UK leaves the EU, these governance and enforcement mechanisms will all be lost. I spoke to Maria Lee, Professor of EU Environmental Law at University College London, about why this matters. At the moment, the environmental principles are in the EU treaties and they underpin um, all of our environmental decision making at all levels, so from the lowliest street level administrator to government policy. The four main environmental principles in the treaty are the precautionary principle, the polluter pays principle, the principle that damage should be rectified at source and the preventive principle. There is also an integration principle which I think is equally important which is also contained in the treaty. So that's the situation we have at the moment. Those principles are essentially binding. It's a bit more complicated than that but essentially binding. And if we are to replicate that then those principles must apply to all environmental actors, all public bodies that make decisions on environmental matters in the United Kingdom. And those bodies should be required to act in accordance with the principles or comply with them or apply the principles. The current government um, proposal that central government only have regard to the principles is extremely weak. To require government to have regard to something um, essentially means that they can have a look at it, decide it stops them doing what they want to do and decide not to apply it. And if we take that step we will be taking a big backward step relative to what we have at the moment. So Maria, I mean your preference, and I think my preference, having listened to our expert witnesses this morning, is that these environmental principles must be put on a statutory footing. That's the, the sort of jargon word for having an act of parliament that puts them onto the statutory book, uh, on the, onto the statute book to ensure they have a firm legal foundation that they apply uh, across the piece and to create concrete legal standards that judges can apply. The government at the moment says, well, we just want to do all this in a policy statement. That's not really good enough, is it? No, I think the um, principles need to be listed in a statute so that they can't just be, um, be sidelined um, without proper democratic process. The statute should do some other things. The statute should require a national policy statement on the principles and it should require that that national policy statement is subject to wide public consultation and subject to approval by the parliaments and assemblies around the United Kingdom. So it needs to be sort of designed by the nations, um, the nations um, of the United Kingdom and, and sort of co-owned by them. But it also, your, your point about consultation is really important, isn't it? Because this is about taking environment out of, uh, of the sort of ambit of the green NGOs and bringing it home to the asthma nurses, um, to the people working in the extractive industries, 
um, to the people working in energy efficiency and the home turbine um, markets as well. This is about businesses, professionals, all of us uh, who, who love nature and, and who enjoy nature and want to uh, live in a clean environment having, having our say. It would be wonderful if we could engage people at that breadth in the environmental principles. The other thing that academic lawyers will often say to you is that the principles in themselves don't mean anything. They aren't, they aren't freestanding and what the principles mean depends on the culture and the jurisdiction that you're in. Um, and so if we didn't have wide consultation and parliamentary approval, the principles could be very much watered down within a national policy statement and it's important that they aren't, that they remain something powerful. There's, we heard as well that there's a sort of trade-off between the levels of penalties set and the levels of ambition. So if the penalties are very harsh, the government might aim very low so that it could meet its, its own low standards and avoid fines. What's your view on that? I think government should comply with its own environmental laws and if it's aiming for ambitious and high standards to get a political win without having any intention of complying with them or being, being simply ambivalent about compliance then that's not good enough. We need to know if they're not being ambitious and we can only tell if they're not being ambitious if that's apparent on the face of the legislation. Um, we've heard a lot of talk from Michael Gove that you know he wants to go further than the European Union frameworks currently allow us. Um, do you think EU environmental frameworks have held us back from achieving higher standards? I've spent 20 years of my life critiquing EU environmental law and explaining where it falls short. Um, so clearly there are things that could in principle be done better. I don't see them being done better at the moment. I mean, there's the cap issue, obviously, which is slightly different. And we common agricultural common, policy. Sorry, common agricultural policy. We should do better there. In most environmental law, I fear we will not do as well, simply as a matter of political will. But I, I hope, I hope we will do better. The government have proposed to create a new environmental watchdog to uphold the law after Brexit, but will it have the constitutional clout of the European Commission and the European Court of Justice? And if future governments think this watchdog is too powerful, what will stop them from putting it to sleep? I spoke to Ruth Davis, Deputy Director at the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. Ruth, um, in the evidence to our inquiry, you said that the government's proposals must not reduce the protections that currently exist under EU law. We mustn't go backwards. Um, do the proposals meet that test? I, I think absolutely categorically not, um, categorically not as it, as it stands, Mary. Um, I mean, there's, there's a very simple thing to me, which is that um, we have a strong process in the European Union as it stands at the moment that holds the government to account should it fail to meet standards that it's signed up to. And the proposals in the consultation right now would not enable us to hold government to, to account in that way. That's specifically because we don't have a means really of being able to um, enforce penalties and take action through uh, legal means if government departments or bodies fail to deliver um, basic kind of uh, uh, standards around things like water and air, which are fundamental to the interests of, of citizens. So as it stands at the moment, we've got a government that has consistently promised us that there would be no diminution of environmental protections after we leave the European Union, and a set of proposals from that government which would leave a gaping hole. 
Um, you said in our committee meeting that um, we need to have a world-leading environment, uh, we need to have a world-leading environment body. Um, you, you've mentioned some of the gaps, the inability to take action under the law, um, so a reduction in access to climate justice, um, an enforcement gap. Um, what else? What else is missing? I mean, you said something about hedgehogs. Talk <laughs> us through that. I, I, I did. I, I think, like many other people who who, who grew up who are my age, um, the hedgehog our was age. our age, Mary. Thank you. <laughs> um, the, the, the hedgehog was a kind of u ubiquitous animal of, of, of gardens and, and fields, and something that was a kind of integral bit of, 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 of culture and childhood culture. And I mean, I was pointing out, you know, that this is an animal that's in, in massive decline in, in the UK, and it's possible that you know my nieces and nephews and should I ever have them grand grandnieces and nephews will never will never see a hedgehog which seems sort of extraordinary if you think that that's what's happened in a, in a generation to our natural environment and the reason I, I raised that was because um, we, we have a government actually that's promised not just to um, make sure that we don't get backwards when we leave the European Union but uh, has said words that I would like to take seriously about um, re restoring the natural environment and leaving the environment in a better state than it found it. Well, in order to be able to do that, the kinds of promises that it's made in its 25-year plan, the commitments it's made to the restoration of the natural environment, have to have some foundation in law. Um, I, I, like many other people who work in, in environmental policy, have seen um, policy pledges come and go. Um, they're not necessarily taken seriously by departments outside of DEFRA um, or indeed by you know, kind of wider government bodies or stakeholders. The alternative to that is that we make a really clear statement as a country through Parliament about what it is that we want to achieve for nature, and then we hold government to account to that in a parliamentary context. And I think we all know that actually, um, you know, Parliament's oversight of that with a piece of primary legislation is something that is considerably more long-lived and reliable than necessarily just policy statements by individual ministers. Ruth Davis wasn't the only person who thought that the government's proposals are too weak. I spoke to another Ruth, Ruth Chambers, who represents Greener UK, a coalition of 13 environmental organisations with a combined membership of 8 million people. Ruth, you had some concerns uh, that you shared with the committee um, about the weaknesses around this new body, particularly around access to justice. That's right, because the consultation proposals are very weak in relation to how we as citizens of the UK are going to be able to hold our government and our public bodies to account in the future where they may be in breach of environmental law. So at the moment the consultation doesn't suggest a very strong mechanism. It asks whether or not there should be a mechanism and I for one as a UK citizen don't want to see my rights diminished as a result of Brexit. I would like to make sure that in the future um, I and all other citizens and members of civil society of the UK would be able to have access to a free mechanism um, to make complaints to the new watchdog that the government intends to set up that would apply to anybody in the UK regardless of where they come from and that would be one way in which we could ensure that our voice is heard in making sure that our, our environment remains fit for purpose. So at the moment we have the power to bring cases um, through the European Commission for free and also to petition the European Parliament so these rights are being uh, reduced with the proposals as they stand from the government. 
That's right. So the proposals are very weak. The, the consultation doesn't say very much about how the government's going to plug this gap. And it's absolutely essential if Brexit isn't going to lead to us losing our voices as citizens in terms of making sure that the environment is protected in the future, that the proposals are toughened up in this regard. That's not the only gap, though. You were also concerned that there would be an enforcement gap um, and that this proposed body would only be able to look at national government, not local government, which is where many of these environmentally important decisions are made. Yes, that's a major gap. So just applying the new body and indeed the environmental principles to the central government, we believe isn't a faithful replication of the status quo and won't ensure that the environment is protected as much as it needs to be in the future. The new body needs to be able to look at the activities and the decisions of bodies such as Natural England and the Environment Agency. Um, and yes, Mary, there, you know, there are other gaps in the consultation too at the moment. The consultation is only proposing that the watchdog has very weak powers. There's no guarantee it's going to be able to take government or public authorities to court. And it must be a prosecutorial authority if it's going to be able to do its job properly. Something else the consultation doesn't mention, which is of great concern, is how the government's going to intend, um, going, to, going to ensure that this new body is truly independent of government. There are many examples of where governments have tried to um, sort of fetter the discretion or the powers or curtail, you know, the powers of those seeking to hold it to account. It's in the DNA of governments to want to do that. It's inevitable. So making sure that this body is set up in as arm's length and an independent way as possible from the outset will be critical. Okay, and there's also, you're worried about the fact that climate change is not under the remit of this body, and that's something that the Committee on Climate Change itself has raised as an anxiety. It seems a really strange mission, and nobody really knows um, why climate has been uh, excluded in the way that it has. The Committee on Climate Change, as you rightly say, doesn't see um, any reason for hard lines between itself and the new body. Neither do we in civil society, and we hope that this is something on which the government will have a rethink. But what sort of body can protect our environmental rights? Have there been bodies in the past that we can learn from? Jill Rutter is a programme director at the Institute for Government and a former senior civil servant at DEFRA. Jill, you were in DEFRA um, when the Sustainable Development Commission was abolished uh, in 2010 by the Conservatives. I was just... actually there just before it was abolished, so I sponsored it. I expanded its powers in the 2005 UK Sustainable Development Strategy we decided that we needed some sort of independent, more independent watchdog to assess government progress. So we actually thought the Sustainable Development Commission was best placed to do that. So we actually gave it a new role. Uh, it reported, it used to report on these things. I don't know whether, whether you've looked at them, which we used to call the soggy targets, the sustainable operations on the government estate targets, which were how far was government itself sort of reducing its carbon footprint, reducing water use. And the government used to report on its own progress. That wasn't very satisfactory. So we thought, let's get the SDC to do it. So we, uh, we made them a sort of a bit more independent from government by making them a sort of executive NDPB, though we didn't get any non-departmental part. A non-departmental pub public body. body. They were an advisory body. So they used to have this very weird relationship where they were an advisory body. So the staff technically worked for me even though they were supposed to be independent of the department. So it's a very strange setup. Not ideal. I mean, the Environmental Audit Committee is now marking the government's homework That's on those sustainable development targets, the green government targets, and they're not doing very well, I can tell you. That's very good to know. That's uh, It's good to know that you're doing it, because uh, we were decided the government doing it itself was not very good incentive to how improvement. Did you, how did you feel when um, the, the commission was abolished? 
I think not very surprised actually. It uh, it was quite interesting, and it's one of these things about when you set up these sorts of bodies that the Sustainable Development Commission was set up back in 1999. Tony Blair, Tony Blair got on very well with Jonathan Porritt, who was chair for really quite a long time. I think he ended up being chair for for nine years. He was clearly a very big figure. He didn't have anything like the same relationship when Gordon Brown became prime minister. So that sort of very important prime ministerial link disappeared. The SDC did some quite useful work in some departments, in some other departments they got no traction at all. Jonathan Porritt actually had a really hard time building a relationship when David Miliband was our Secretary of State. I think there was a bit too much competition for who was going to be driving the agenda there. And then we'd had what I was called the very difficult sort of second chair issue. Who's your next chair? We went to, we didn't have huge numbers of applicants, the person we went to was much lower profile, so I think the profile was already going down. So I think with a government coming in determined to rid itself of lots and lots of quangos, it's actually quite easy to go for the sort of cheaper ones that aren't on a statutory basis, so it wasn't probably a particular surprise the SDC went. Um, they also got rid of the Royal Commission on Environmental Pollution, which had lasted a lot longer, which was set up in 1970, um, in the 70s under Harold Wilson. Were you surprised that that went as well? I think it was more surprising that they went because they, I thought they had a bigger constituency of support. And I think at the hearing that we had today, Susan Owens, who was on it, gave some sort of really quite interesting uh, background. She's written, I think, a long history of the RCEP. Uh, that clearly was better embedded, but I think it was another of those things. It's been going on for quite a long time. Uh, certainly some of my fellow officials in DEFRA had begun to find uh, sessions with the RCEP quite frustrating. They again had a secretariat from DEFRA, but, uh, but they seemed to be always sort of coming in and rather castigating government officials for, uh, for government policy. And so I didn't think they had a huge constituency of support. So when the time came, I'm not sure how many voices within the department were saying this is a really essential piece of the architecture. It has to be kept. But of course, that's the really interesting thing when you come on to look at the sort of new proposals for an environmental watchdog to substitute for the EU bodies, because the EU bodies have a permanence that's really impossible to give any body that's set up by statute in the UK because what one government can create in statute another government can take away by legislating and the government after all in 2010 tried to take powers to abolish lots of these bodies by uh, secondary legislation but was seen off by the House of Lords then but I mean it can take primary legislation to change the purposes or uh, or to abolish them, or in many cases just to sort of make them less effective by reducing their budgets. So, so problem number one with the proposed watchdog is, you, as you said, we can never really substitute for the bodies that we have as, as, as members of the EU. But then there's also this issue about how do we set it up so that government doesn't cut its budget whenever it gives out a report that the government does not like or agree with. You said something very interesting about the National Audit Office and how that was established. So I think the National Audit Office is a very interesting, because National Audit office is a creature of parliament and it gets its money from parliament rather than from government so most if you're set up as conventional uh, non-departmental public body your money usually comes through some sort of grant in aid from your department and actually what's quite interesting about that is when the treasury does its settlement with the department you don't see how much of that money is going to the public bodies they actually get their money at a later stage they have to make a sort of argument with the department on how much they how much they get 
It's different for some bodies. There are some bodies called non-ministerial departments who technically do their own negoti negotiations with the Treasury. Um, they may or may not do that so much, but they certainly have a sort of single identified line. Uh, there's one interesting exception to this rule that you don't see how much money the body gets, which is the Office for Budget Responsibility. So after all, which, the watchdog which, on the Treasury uh, you know, does the sort of fiscal forecasting, makes sure the government's on track to deliver its fiscal targets. And really interestingly, this was actually an initiative by Parliament, uh, who said actually Treasury, we don't necessarily trust you to keep funding this. You know, when they start saying you're not doing such a great job, maybe you'll decide to to rein them back a bit. So the uh, the Treasury Select Committee said that the Treasury, and I think this is probably in the legislation, I'm not sure about that, but the, what happens is the OBR's spending is separately identified. It's not a very big amount of money. But so Parliament itself can see how much money the Treasury is putting into the OBR to make sure it's not sort of you know, salaming it a bit and making it a bit less effective every time it puts out a report saying the government's not on track to meet its fiscal targets. We also had a debate, didn't we, about this regulator, this environmental regulator. And um, you made a very important point that it's not regulating everyone, it's a regulator of government. I think this is really interesting about what role does this play, because obviously we've got some big environmental regulators there and they're going to stay. So we've got the Environment Agency that does all that environment enforcement of the sort of thing we would normally call pollution control. We've got National, Natural England, that's a sort of, you know, people in charge of sort of, you know, maintaining biodiversity and things like that. So what I think the governance gap that emerges is who holds the government to account for performance? This is really quite interesting when you lose that sort of supranational framework because, of course, the EU is holding the UK government to account for its role in implementing EU rules. I mean, does that across all member states because member states would otherwise say, well, that's unfair, you know, the uh, XYZ country has signed up to this rule, it's not bothering to implement it, we are, we're imposing costs on our business, they're not, so it's not a level playing field. You'll hear a lot, I think, in coming months from the EU about level playing field. Um, so it's a bit different because in this case, uh, it's not going to be EU law. It might be retained EU law, but it's not going to be law that's coming from outside. It's going to be UK law that we're in control of, that this body is then trying to say, well, oh, government, are you actually delivering that UK law? So it's a regulator of government. So I think that's quite an interesting thing. Possibly the nearest you come to it is the Equality and Human Rights Commission, which has a role to say is the government living up to sort of equalities, uh, equalities rules. I think that might be an interesting place to look. So it's a, it's a rather odd role. And I think one of the things that's quite interesting is the government is talking about setting these you know, big 25-year plans. I thought there was a very interesting point somebody made in the session before me about actually it's very easy for government to be extraordinarily ambitious 25 years out. What you really want to do is someone who says, well, actually, if you're going to achieve that in 25 years' time, what are you doing this year? What are you going to be doing in three, five years' time? So I think it's very interesting to have a body that can say, well, a government, if that's where you want to go, then actually this is what you need to be doing for that to be a credible promise. Because otherwise, it's tr when I got to DEFRA, we used to have all these plans for... Um, uh, public service agreements, those old things that uh, Tony Blair Gordon Brown used to used to impose on departments as part of our spending settlements. And what was really interesting about all the ones in DEFRA is they'd be read through every quarter until the last one when the PSA 
uh, was due to be delivered and then magically it would turn green and you could never see what was happening between that sort of line of reds and the sudden green delivery that we were absolutely confident we could do. So I think there's a really interesting role for that body, both in saying, are you actually enforcing the law as is now, but also looking forward and saying, if these are your environmental ambitions, are you on track to deliver them? And that's why I thought one of the things that was very interesting in the government's consultation document was that the government said it was going to be DEFRA, so the government itself reporting on progress towards those environmental goals rather than the body. And I actually think that's a bit naive by DEFRA. Because one of the things that's really interesting when you're sitting in DEFRA is that you realise that you are responsible for all these environmental objectives, but a huge number of the levers are in other government departments. And actually you need all the allies you can get to bring pressure on other departments because quite often from DEFRA, particularly if you're in a period when you don't have a powerful Secretary of State, it's very difficult to get other departments, whether it's housing, communities and local government, Department for Transport, to take the environmental agenda seriously. And that's really what we need. And the Treasury. And the Treasury. As Jill Rutter says, the government has more experience shutting down watchdogs than setting them up. If we want a world-leading environment, we need a world-leading environmental watchdog. So the Environmental Audit Committee has called for a new Environmental Enforcement and Audit Office with the power to take the government to court. We want the government to set five yearly legally binding targets, not just on waste, air and water quality, but on habitats, biodiversity loss and soil health, just as we see with the Climate Change Act. We want the new Green Watchdog to report to Parliament so that it cannot be scrapped in the future. Getting a new watchdog set up before Brexit is a big job, but it's clear it's something the government simply cannot fudge. I'm Mary Cray. That was the Emergency on Planet Earth podcast. Thanks for listening.